HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We have to talk about girl dinner and how it relates to the oppression of straight married women. This is my meal. I call this girl dinner. Girl dinner. Here's why this matters. When women marry men, they gain about seven hours of additional daily work, like cooking and cleaning and picking up around the house, compared to single women. This is women without children. So women who marry men gain seven hours. Men lose an hour of daily work. So if the difference for men is very small, but the difference for women is very big, why? Girl dinner. Couple of things, single men and single women might both be eating girl dinner, but when women marry, they turn into wives and wives have different expectations than husbands. Women end up cooking more, doing their wifely duties because they're expected to. Men don't. Another consideration is that men who live at home with women who direct them or do most of the housework, give them lists, end up having lower standards when they move out on their own. They're fine with the stuff left on the ground or the tidying. And so the women who have higher expectations placed on them end up picking up the slack. Women are often raised to be efficient because they are fully in charge of picking up around the house. They see the inner workings and the way that the gears fit together. So women pick up as they go, whereas men don't always do that. I'm talking broad strokes here, but there is data that suggests that the way that boys are raised and girls are raised within the home and how they take responsibility for tasks ends up bleeding into adulthood. Boys age 15 to 17 have an hour more leisure time compared to girls. While boys are doing things like video gaming, again, this is rooted in data, girls are doing things like running errands, doing housework and volunteering. Girls are raised with the knowledge that when they become wives, all of the social expectations of being a wife will fall on them. And so they internalize the need to learn those things. Men are not judged the same way that women are when they don't keep a pleasant space. Settling down means something different for husbands and wives. I hate cooking, but I fell into this trap and I tried to learn how I tried to like it when I became a wife. I feed my kids good food, but I'm a girl dinner girl. I'm a girl dinner wife. That's okay. Eating pickles and chips for dinner doesn't make me a bad wife. 
If you spent any of your summer online, you undoubtedly came across the Girl Dinner. Originating on social media apps, likely TikTok, Girl Dinner has even made it into the traditional media reporting outlets. The Washington Post, Bon Appetit, though they were quick in their appeal for people to stop obsessing over it. And even the New York Times put out articles dissecting and ruminating on what Girl Dinner is, means, and signifies about who and where we are as a society. Oh, and thank you to TikTok user That Darn Chat for getting the nuanced conversation rolling at the top of the show today. On this episode of Meet and Three, we are trying to move beyond predefined ways of thinking. Beyond Western medical definitions, we are thinking outside the box to better understand disordered eating. Disordered eating has a history of visibility as a negative disease and is seen as impacting a small population. Historically, it's only been young, white women and girls that were depicted in the media and in literature with eating disorders. However, the phenomenon of disordered eating, which we're using here to mean eating outside the norm, contains far more nuance about how it's actually experienced and by whom. Along the way, we'll hear about a medical anthropologist's perspective on intuitive eating, the impact of fad diets and social media on our collective psyches, and yes, the girl dinner. I'm Matt Patterson, and this is Meet and Three on HRN. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. To start us off, Sasha DuBose and Zoya Raymond chat about the Girl Dinner. Girl Dinner, a food trend featuring low-maintenance meals, has taken the internet by storm. The trend started on TikTok with Olivia Marr showing off a snack plate-style meal and named it Girl Dinner. Since then, women and femmes across the internet are posting their Girl Dinners, and some are more nourishing than others. To unpack all of this, I talked with my food studies bestie, Zoya Rahman. She is a scholar and writer who focuses on food and society from a feminist lens. Zoya speaks first about how she encountered Girl Dinner. When we first started talking about Girl Dinner, um, just like casually, I had had like a couple of conversations with friends from different backgrounds as well, and um, everybody had a take on it. And some people are talking about this was really bad. It's like, you know, associating femininity with not eating. And there's some people being like, you know what, this is really liberatory and really great. Girl dinner, it is a term that recognizes how women and femmes have been existing and the strategies that they have been using while trying to survive the expectations of society for a very long time. So girl dinner is for, you know, the young women who work nine to fives. It's for the girls who go scrounge something up for dinner because, you know, dad is not cooking. And it's for the wives that are exhausted after, you know, caregiving and providing for their families, feeding themselves, either with what they have or maybe being a little indulgent and eating something that they like to eat and doing something for themselves. That says that girl dinner doesn't have to be called girl dinner. I feel like girl dinner has existed for much, much longer than we have actually given it a name. This makes me think a lot about my grandma. My grandma is a woman who has been cooking the moment since she was born. She needs girl dinner more than anyone. What does girl dinner look like for women who have been cooking for their families? 
for generations. Right. And I think that is so, so, so relevant to South Asia that encapsulates gendered expectations surrounding food in South Asia so perfectly. Um, And I think that's just so true that women in South Asia will cook for anybody other than themselves. And that's what's expected of them. What does girl dinner look like for women who cook for anyone but themselves? and have been conditioned to invest themselves in this labor that does not benefit them. It does not nourish them. I think girl dinner at its core is an expression of self-care for women in relationships and situations that take more than they give. Girl Dinner is filled with charcuterie and contradictions. The trend definitely takes a turn for the worst when Girl Dinner doesn't look like a meal. Despite this, Girl Dinner, when it includes food, can be deeply nourishing for women and femmes looking for a quick and satisfying bite. Next, we revisit a story that ran on Meetin 3 in 2021. In this conversation, you'll hear Brianna Brady speaking with Charlotte Marquis, professor of psychology and health science at Rutgers University, about fad diets, social media, and how it all might affect our relationships to our bodies and food. Almost all dieting is fad dieting because almost all dieting is time-limited based on terms or instructions that are not sustainable, and they tend to follow trends that come and go, or at least repackaged across time. Most of us can probably name some eating trends we've seen come and go. Whole30, keto, Weight Watchers, the grapefruit diet, paleo, juice cleanse, intermittent fasting. The list goes on. It's worth saying that when we talk about these eating trends as diets, we mean a time-limited change in our eating behaviors for the purposes of losing weight. Which, on the whole, isn't something Charlotte thinks is good for us. It tends to only result in weight loss very, very short term. It tends to damage people's relationship with food. It makes them not enjoy food as much. It creates Um, this sense of surveillance about what they eat and how they look that is maladaptive. And over the long haul, we know that multiple attempts at dieting may be detrimental to physical health. And it also is one of the greatest predictors of eating disorders. So what is it about these programs and prescriptions that we find so enticing? We see a lot of messaging and the internet and social media exacerbate this, I think, that suggests that if we can change our physical appearance in some way by losing weight, for example, then we can be happier and we can change our whole life. Not all of the food content on social media is about dieting. There's the stuff that's always been there, the weird cooking videos or the pictures of that fancy restaurant your friend went to, but the dieting stuff is not hard to find. What's particularly concerning about this messaging is not just that it's everywhere, but that it's so often inaccurate because social media has made it possible for anyone to offer anyone else advice. If you do think from viewing social media that there are certain ways you should be eating and you feel inadequate because you're not following these 
prescriptions or whatever some influencer has suggested is, is a good way to eat, um, then this can be, you know, kind of upsetting and demoralizing and I think unnecessarily so. Some of these dieting posts are paid content. They're celebrities hawking appetite suppressants or meal replacement shakes. But there are also trends that aren't focused on specific products. The example I think of the most is like how I eat in a day type posts where you would want to see how someone who looks amazing and seems like the, you know, image of health, how they actually eat. Um, but they're usually really toxic in that it's this form of self-presentation that we see in social media that probably doesn't perfectly align with reality. I looked up some of these posts. Actually, I went down a deep, dark TikTok hole. And not all of them seem bad. Some of them are even positive posts from people who are in recovery from eating disorders. But I can also see what she means. What is a fam? Okay, this is a what I eat in a day that helped me lose 37 pounds. Guys, I lost two more pounds. Every time I see a what I eat in a day video, I think, is that really all I ate? I feel like I eat so much more than everybody else. Hi friends, today I'm eating like Kylie Jenner for the day, according to herself. Wanna know what I really eat in a day? Let me show you. What I eat in a day as a signed model working in Tokyo, Japan. TikTok owns that there is some danger involved in these kinds of posts. At the top of the hashtag what I eat in a day page, they have this message. At TikTok, while we value creative expression, our foremost priority is keeping users safe. If you or someone you know are experiencing concerns around body image, food, or exercise, it's important that you know help is out there and that you are not alone. They then share the contact for the National Eating Disorders Association helpline. So, given this message and everything else, how worried should we be about this? Charlotte has done research concerning body image issues and social media use among teen girls. And what really seems to matter is how girls use social media. They oftentimes just send friends messages or share pictures of themselves and their friends. And that seems actually pretty benign. But when girls spend time following celebrity culture or watching beauty tutorials or um, just focusing on appearance-based information, that seems to be much more detrimental to their own body image. We may not all be teenage girls, but this still might feel familiar. It's hard not to want those images that we're getting of beauty and health for ourselves. But maybe we can pivot. When it comes to food, maybe we can focus on what's tasty instead on foods and recipes that delight us. For Charlotte, that means... Mexican food is always my favorite food. <laughs> I grew up in California, so we um, ate a lot of tacos and burritos and chips and guacamole. As for me, maybe I'll share that soup recipe that makes me feel cozy or the lentil bolognese I make every other week. It's pretty delicious, but I don't think it'll become a fad. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3 Annie Kempel is an anthropologist, a registered dietitian, and an intuitive eating counselor. Her overlapping yet distinct roles inform how she understands disordered eating. Annie recently spoke on HRN's Gastronomica, where she described her anthropological research of eating disorders in rural Appalachian communities. Currently, I work um, as the anthropologist at the American Board of Family Medicine, and uh, their office is based in Lexington, Kentucky, which is where I've lived for the past about 10 years. I'm kind of at the intersection of primary care research and uh, medical anthropology. Annie's research helped define disordered eating, pushing beyond our sometimes narrow conceptions of what these behaviors look like or who engages in them. What is disordered eating itself? How does it affect people? How does it move between people? And I would hate in the article or here to put limits on it or a specific specific definition because it's really a range of behaviors and it's on a continuum. So it can include things like restricting certain foods, feeling like you can't stop thinking about eating or food, and also those things that we stereotypically think of with um, an eating disorder like binging or purging, over-exercising, obsessing with weight. Many professionals think any degree of disordered eating requires attention and treatment. In our you know, typical Western biomedical model, we have a way of putting boxes around things and expecting degrees of severity before we pay attention to them. And this is really not helpful and can actually be detrimental when it comes to these deeply embodied and emotional experiences like disordered eating. Annie's work reveals to us that so many of these words and phrases we throw around related to this topic often get distorted or misunderstood. If you want to hear the rest of that conversation with Annie, check out episode 30 of Gastronomica. We thought her perspective was so interesting that we had producer Kate Dario follow up with her to continue the conversation in our final story. During our previous story, we just heard Annie Kempel introduce herself. We heard from Annie the anthropologist, but Annie approaches eating disorders from other perspectives too. She's also a dietitian and an intuitive eating counselor. As a dietitian, I've counseled people with disordered eating, um, not eating disorders. You know, I have not counseled somebody with a diagnosed eating disorder. But um, so I think in dietetics and even in psychology, there is very much the focus on the individual and the pathology, um, which is important. And then as an anthropologist, there's more of a focus on the the institutions that enable these behaviors or even encourage these behaviors and more of a societal, cultural approach of understanding how this works on a societal level, how this moves through networks of people, um, kind of the broader pieces outside of the individual, if that makes sense. 
Of those three titles, anthropologist, dietitian, and intuitive eating counselor, I had the least familiarity with intuitive eating counselor. I've seen the phrase intuitive eating everywhere lately, but I didn't really know what it meant. Annie said there are specific guidelines for intuitive eating, and they often differ from what you see thrown around on social media. She explained the core 10 principles. It's so you reject the diet mentality, honor your hunger, make peace with food, challenge the food police, discover the satisfaction factor, feel your fullness, cope with your emotions with kindness, respect your body, um, gentle exercise, and then gentle nutrition. And so a lot of times in the TikTok, Instagram world, intuitive eating gets turned into a mindfulness diet where you're just eating when you're hungry, not eating when you're full. And that can, that reduction of the 10 principles down to those two can really actually cause some disordered eating um, because there's a lot of psychology behind hunger and fullness. Misconceptions and misunderstandings. That was a constant thread in our conversation. One of the biggest challenges about talking about disordered eating is the persistent stereotypes surrounding these behaviors. Anyone can experience disordered eating. It's, I've had a few conversations and a lot more work needs to be done among transgender and non-binary communities around eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, But I would, I would bet that most people, if not everyone, either has a certain amount of disordered eating behaviors or knows someone who does. It is in no way tied to any type of gender, racial, or any other type of identity. Annie's own dissertation research challenged prevailing yet inaccurate ideas about who experiences disordered eating. She conducted her research in eastern Kentucky, in central Appalachia. Following, you know, national trends in eating disorders, I expected to see that mostly white women would have higher scores on the screening test, and men were actually significantly more likely to engage in um, disordered eating in this community, which was very, it wasn't very surprising to me because I think disordered eating is common among men. It's just not as reported. Um, And, you know, that's a whole other study in and of itself about what, you know, prevents men from being diagnosed with an eating disorder or what prevents them from acknowledging that they're engaging in disordered eating. As Annie said earlier, strict medical definitions don't always help the most people who are struggling. She emphasized the importance of not just focusing on eating disorders, but also disordered eating. We tend to only put the care on people who have a diagnosed eating disorder, and they absolutely deserve that care. They need that attention. But again, even if you're engaging in only one behavior, like cutting out a certain food group or weighing yourself every day, that deserves care. Listening to Annie reminds us of the importance of providing care for ourselves and for each other when facing disordered eating. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Sasha Dubose and Kate Dario. Meet and Three is produced by H. Connolly, Taylor Early, and me, Matt Patterson. Our audio engineer for this episode is Armin Spengen. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. 
And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.